and a big welcome back here. We are all working out that it has been, uh, well, Daisy and I came back for something, but on the whole, it's been about two and a half years since we had an event here live in the Tabernacle. So it's fantastic to see you all again. And thank you all for coming. And I hope you're going to have a great time, which I know you're going to have a great time. Um, I'm basically going to introduce you to my old friend, Viv Groskop, who started, we started working together in 1995 when we were on Esquire magazine. And Viv's career since then has been amazing. She left the Express as well, like me, and then was really glad that she ended up with a career that turned her into a comedian, a writer, a commentator, and the author of the wonderful book, How to Own the Room. And she has done 5 by 15s herself. She's very, very funny. And joining her is the wonderful John Crace, who has made all the difference in the world to everybody's lockdown, and indeed all the difference in the world to all of us who can't bear the government. Um, John's book, The New Normal Survival Guide, uh, is needed every day of the week. And as he says, every day, you think there's nothing going on, but in fact, there is so much going on. So with no further ado, I should also say, both authors will be downstairs signing books afterwards from our regular bookseller, Newham Books, who are here, and it's great to see them. Um, with no further ado, I'm going to hand over to Viv and John and be prepared to be entertained and enjoy it. Thank you so much, Rosie, for that lovely introduction. And thank you to all of you for coming out. Um, let's have more cheering for being back in the room. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and, and thank you. Thank you to all of you for coming and, and for sharing in my passion and love for John Crace. Uh, this is going to be... A, a, a completely partisan, non-BBC event. There will be no BBC objectivity at this event whatsoever. Am I right, John? Yeah. Uh, so we're here really to celebrate John's brilliant book, Farewell to Calm, which is a collection um, of his sketches from uh, 2020 and 2021. Um, John, before we get stuck into the... 56 million questions that need to be asked about how the hell we got into this shit show. Um, what does it mean to be a parliamentary sketch writer? You've been doing that since 2014. What do you do from day to day and has it turned out to be the job that you expected it to be? Um, well, to start at the, the end, um, absolutely not the job I expected. I expected it to be somewhat niche um, when I first took a... I mean, I got the job entirely by accident as, um, because the person doing it before me was the wonderful Simon Hoggart, who had been the Guardian sketch writer for 20 years. Um, and I hadn't even known that he was ill. Um, and he died, I mean, not unexpectedly, but very sadly, and I got my very first... I'd been at The Guardian for 20 years, and I'd never had an email from Alan Rusbridger. Um, <laughs> you might think that that is unusual. Um, it wasn't... Alan wasn't the world's greatest communicator, and um, I'd only ever had joint, um, you know, sort of all-company all emails... Um, and I got this email saying, re Simon Hoggart. And I almost didn't open it um, because I thought he was just going to say, well, Simon's died. And I thought, well, I know that anyway. And, um, but no, it was to offer me the job. And as I say, I thought it was going to be niche. I thought it was going to be for politics nerds. I, I was a politics nerd. I thought, well, I'm going to enjoy this, but it's going to be, there's not going to be a big audience for this stuff. And, you know, initially, I was sort of right. Um, it was the tail end of the coalition, and there were sort of mothballs in Parliament. Nothing was going on, really. And then it all went 
berserk. First, we had the Scottish referendum, then the May election that um, in 2015 that David Cameron didn't expect to win. Um, so then we got the Brexit referendum, then years of Brexit. Then we just get, we get, we get Theresa May, we get Boris Johnson, we get COVID. Um, until today, when we get MPs watching porn on their phones in Parliament, you kind of think, how did we get here? I don't know. <laughs> yes, I'm assuming that everyone in the room knows that an unnamed MP has been reported for watching porn on his phone. Um, that's... I have no names. I mean, the lobby team has been spending the whole day virtually trying to find out who this, who this MP is. Uh, so all, far, all we've got three of... names, and they're all different. So maybe there's three of them. <laughs> that would be a nice thought. Can you say who it is? No, because I, I honestly don't know. OK. Um, My money's I mean, on Jacob Rees-Mogg. I mean, whoever you... <laughs> OK, it was him. Well, I mean, what do I care? If only. Um, but is that, that's a typical day for you, <laughs> is that a story like that is breaking and you are in the Commons from what time until what time and how do you decide what to file, how fast you have to write, how does all of that work? Um, well, I mean, a good sketch should be kind of comedic and entertaining. You kind of take that as sort of red, but you can sort of, you hope to aim for a bit more, I think, you know, with, I mean, good satire should sort of puncture the, the pompous, the lies, and sort of hold the, uh, the powerful to account in some way. So you try and make the sketch about the most important thing that's going on in politics, you know, that particular day. I mean, today, when most Wednesdays, it'll be PMQs. Um, Mondays are often a nightmare because Parliament doesn't start till 2.30 and very often that means that the, if there's a prime ministerial statement or something like that, it doesn't take place till 4.30. So by the time that you've got 5.30, from 5.30 to 7.30 to knock out seven, you know, seven to 800 words. And I mean, every day I feel panic. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, it, it's not good for my anxiety levels. Um, but, you, you know, you can't avoid it. Yeah, are there times when you feel like you need to step back? And what, what can you do if you need to do that? Or is it just a relentless job that you have to keep on doing and you hope that they'll stop watching porn and saying ridiculous things so that you have something more relaxing to write about. Um, there just doesn't seem to be any chance of that at the moment. I mean, <laughs> um, you know, I mean, we've been spoilt with Partygate. Um, you know, and I think there is a feeling that sort of Boris is on his last legs. Um, You know, I, I have a bad track record on predictions, um, but this is just my gut feeling. The sort of Tory front bench doesn't look like it's a happy front bench at the moment. Um, you know, they are being constantly sent out to defend the indefensible stuff they don't believe in. I mean, like the Rwanda policy. I mean, obviously, Pretty Patel believes in it, but there are a few, quite a few sensible Tories who don't believe in it for a second, but are having to go out there and pretend that they support it. Um, and I think there is a notion, a feeling going around that actually Boris isn't quite the vote winner that everybody thought he was. Um, you know, there was, there was the kind of Boris myth that he was the great vote winner who took 
um, the Tories from minus 40 or whatever it was by the time there were just defections in November, December 2019 to a, a, an 80-seat majority. But, um, you know, as we know, he did it, A, on a lie, um, which was the... Which one? Well, there are some, there are, as ever, there are so many, but the main one was the Northern Ireland Protocol, um, you know, which was a fudge. He knew it was a fudge. He knew it was essentially make Northern Ireland part of the Republic of Ireland to all intents and purposes as far as trade's concerned and would split up the union, but he pretended that it didn't. And, you know, a lot of Tories, Tory Brexiteers, just sort of bit their lips and went for it because they thought if, it, if they didn't go for it, then Brexit might be denied them. So they wanted that feeling of security, so they were prepared to believe a lie. And I mean, the other bit of Boris's good luck was that he was up against Jeremy Corbyn. Um, you know, and you kind of think, you know, there are a lot of Tories who could have got an 80-seat majority against Jeremy Corbyn. Um, you know, I, I might have got an 80-seat majority <laughs> against Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> Are there moments when you, as a writer, almost want someone like Boris to be a key character in all of this? Or does the human being in you take over and think, I can't take this anymore? Do you learn to see these people as characters? Or does something else come into play? Um, you always have to be careful what you wish for. Um, you know, a lot of us weren't that happy with Theresa May. But now she looks like a sort of voice of sanity, really. <laughs> I mean, imagine being nostalgic for Theresa May. Um, but that's sort of where we are. And, you know, and you kind of travel in hope as well, because there's always Liz Truss. Uh, I mean, here is, here is a prime minister in waiting. I mean, yeah, for the laughs. Imagine the fun. I mean, you know, UK as a laughing stock. Um, but so, you know, there will be people to replace Boris. I mean, do we want someone sensible? Would we like Keir Starmer? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would. Um, I mean, I think it would be a lot harder to sketch. Um, and I don't know quite how I would do it. I hope I would do it in the way that I've always done it, which is sort of equal opportunities, really. You kind of call out idiocy where you see it. Um, so if the Labour Party started doing something kind of completely stupid, then um, I would go there. Um, What's been your take uh, in the last 48 hours with this story around Angela Rayner and the... Um well, I don't even want to call it something gate. Ridiculous gate. Leg gate. Leg gate. <laughs> um, I'm sure people are familiar with this story, a story in the mail on Sunday, so it, which really tried to have it both ways. It was trying to say, uh, you know, there's uh, Tories are saying that Angela Rayner distracts the Prime Minister by wearing a short skirt, uh, like in Basic Instinct. Uh, so some of them claiming they were reporting this and others seem to be portraying this as if this is what she's really doing. Uh, and it, the story is just dragging on and on. What's your take on that? Well, I mean, it was... I mean, I think it was a clear effort to take down Angela Rayner. Um, and, I mean, it was everything that she said it was. It was kind of... It wasn't just sort of sexist and misogynistic it was sort of kind of classist as well because it was sort of like she was too stupid to do anything else there was absolutely no way that she could hold her own against the brilliance of Boris Johnson <laughs> and yet anyone I mean she is she has taken on Boris Johnson a couple of times at uh, Prime Minister's questions and he was hopeless 
Um, he, couldn't, he couldn't cope. He can't cope with intelligent women, I don't think. Um, it re he kind of really struggles. And, I mean, the other thing about the story was that it's, what did it say about Boris Johnson? Is that, you know, you've got a prime minister, you know, supposedly in charge of the cost of living, you know, the worst economic crisis in, a, in decades, uh, or at least since the financial crash. And, um, you know, he was just sort of looking up Angela Rayner's skirt. Um, or maybe that's only too believable. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, but it, it, the story itself was just nonsense, really. And to portray it as the Mail on Sunday have, as some kind of protection of free speech, is sort of laughable. Um, because the whole point of being a journalist is that, you know, you're not obliged to write down and print everything that an MP tells you. Um, you know, there, there is meant to be some kind of editorial decision that sort of goes on. And clearly the Mail on Sunday, you know, thought that that was a message and a story they wanted to run. How do politicians relate to you personally in your capacity as a sketch writer? Would they come and try and feed you lines and ideas or give you reflections on things that you've written? Or are you left to do your sketches in the way that you want and they just don't bother? Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm friendly with some MPs. I mean, a lot of MPs give me a very wide berth. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I, I mean, the thing is that if you're rude about one MP, you make friends with 649 others. <laughs> so, you know, it sort of swings and roundabouts and, um, you know, so there was, I mean, one, one particular occasion comes to mind, because when I took over the job in 2014, I did think, you know, how do I differentiate myself from Simon? You know, you know it's such a tough act to follow. And I kind of thought, well, one thing I could do was, um, Simon had always been very funny and had picked on, in a way, Michael Fabricant who is one of the more absurd Tory MPs. <laughs> and he had been, you could always tell if it was a slow day in Parliament because Simon would just riff about Michael Fabricant for three or four paragraphs. So I thought, well, maybe what I could do would be to retire Michael Fabricant from the sketch. And after I'd been doing the job for about six to nine months, I got tapped on the shoulder by a Tory MP who said, Michael Fabricant's very worried. <laughs> and I said, what about? And he said, um, he hasn't featured in the sketch. And I said, well, he's not going to. And he said, oh. He's going to be very upset. So anyway, Michael could be quite happy these days because just recently I've broken the amerta on Michael <laughs> Fabricant and decided that he is so absurd that I can no longer ignore him. <laughs> I mean, just today, he sort of made an austere... During Prime Minister's questions, um, it was announced that 287... MPs from both sides of the House had been sanctioned by Russia. And um, Michael Fabricant stood up at the end of point of order yeah, and said, I was one of the ones who were sanctioned. You know, and it, clearly it was the most exciting thing that had ever happened to him. <laughs> Whereas the rest of us were just thinking, that's the first sensible thing the Russians have done in ages. <laughs> 
I mean, if we could sanction Michael Fabricant and so he didn't enter the country, it would be absolutely perfect. <laughs> I'm kind of wondering, I don't know what he looked like back He's when, got a wig. Well, yeah, I was going to say, I wondered, He's got a wig, I wondered if he... Which is consciously uncoupling from his head. <laughs> I mean, I think as he gets older, his head's got smaller, but the wig remains the same. So it, 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 you don't even know if it's on the right way round anymore. I was just wondering if he had acquired the wig in order to attract your attention. Well, I think he attracted Simon's first. And I mean, it is quite eye-catching. You know, he is, he is the only platinum blonde in the whole building. And he's about 75. <laughs> it's extraordinary. Yeah. Oh, dear. It's a crowded field of absurd yeah. characters. Yeah, and there are others as well. I mean, you know, we have Matt Hancock. Oh, come on. Very popular in the room. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, just the other day, I was having lunch in the canteen, and sort of Matt Hancock drifted by, and he's so needy. It's, it, sort of, it sort of makes your skin crawl a bit. He said, oh, you're not going to be beastly about me in the near future, are you? And you can think, he's desperate for me to. <laughs> he's desperate not to be ignored. Well, he must have loved your column today, though. He'll be out partying tonight. <laughs> um, yeah, John's just written a column imagining Matt Hancock's COVID diaries. Yeah, well, it's the big love story, isn't it, with Gina? I mean, this is a man who sort of dresses like the milk tray advert. Um, he's a black turtleneck, sort of jeans, and he's really going places. Um, it's, and he did a podcast recently where the, the, the presenter asked him about his affair, and he said, it's not an affair. We, were f we, we fell in love. You know, it was like Dr. Zhivago or something. <laughs> um, you know, and he'll do anything to sort of for attention. You kind of think, you know, just recently he announced on Twitter that he was um, taking some Ukrainian refugees. And he kind of thought, haven't they suffered enough? <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, in that same interview uh, on the podcast, interestingly, because so many people focused quite rightly on the great love affair, yeah. uh, he also gave an extraordinary quote about the background of most Conservative MPs. The, the interviewer was saying, you know, you don't have enough people from a mixed background, you don't have enough people who've grown up in poverty. And Matt Hancock responded... Well, I believe that uh, Rishi Sunak's mother was a pharmacist. <laughs> well, Imagine she... the suffering. What, she owned a pharmaceutical company? <laughs> Just extraordinary. Do you think there is any way back for... Let's stay on Matt Hancock for a moment. Is there a way back for him? He clearly thinks there is. Oh, he, he's, he's absolutely certain there is. And, I mean, the... the Tory benches aren't exactly loaded with talent. <laughs> so it is possible in an alternate world that, um, you know, Boris goes, Jeremy Hunt possibly as the compromise candidate sort of holds the fort to the next election. And, Jer you know, Matt Hancock gets made a junior minister. You know, you would think most ex-cabinet secretary, your cabinet ministers wouldn't settle for that. Matt would. <laughs> Literally anything. 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 I know you were saying that you, you, you're not, you don't have a great record on, on predictions, and that isn't your job. Um, mm. But if you had to give a timeline to what could happen in the next few months, what do you think is likely and who are the characters who are going to be circling? Um, if I see another picture of Liz Truss in a Margaret Thatcher outfit, I'm going to lose it. Yeah, We're going to see more, aren't we? I mean, unfortunately, we sent all our tanks to Poland, so she can't <laughs> appear in them anymore now. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, it's so weird because, you know, a few months ago you'd be saying Rishi Sunak. Um, but now he is literally out in the cold. Um, you know, he kind of hates his life. The rest of his... The rest of the Tories hate him as well. Um, you know, it's... It's kind of strange, really. I mean, you have to sort of think about the sort of Tory narratives. You know, there was this sort of away day yesterday with the Cabinet. Actually, it wasn't away day. It was actually in Downing Street, where Boris was having a brains trust. You know, can we think of ways to save money that don't involve spending any money? <laughs> and... It's sort of like, you know, because Rishi had said there's no money to spend. Well, borrowing is a political choice. There is more money to spend if you want to spend it. But some of the stuff they were coming up with was completely idiotic. I mean, I put something in the sketch which was just... I mean, this is one of the dangers of being a sketch writer these days, is that you become a transcription service. <laughs> because nothing you could think of would be so idiotic. But Grant Shapps literally had this idea that people should drive around looking for cheaper petrol. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it... it this is, is how Rwanda happens. It is absolutely bonkers. Um, you know, you dread to think what Boris would have come up with, you know. Well, you know, if you've got a bill to pay, you get Lord Brownlow in, presumably. Um, any Tory donor will do. Um, but, you know, Rishi has turned off the taps, and so, I mean, we don't know. I mean, I don't know who's going, who, who will turn out to be in the running. I mean, I think Boris was sort of hoping that there would be no one who was truly credible um, so that the Tories take a sort of deep breath and think, well, Boris Johnson is still the best of a bad lot, so we'd better stick with him and not write our letters to the 1922 committee. Um, I'm not so sure that's going to hold up, really. Um, it depends partly on the local election results next Thursday. If they're as bad as we think they might be, that will cause some Tories to think twice. And, I mean, it also seems inevitable, I think, that Boris gets more fines. I don't see how he avoids them. If, he get, if the police if the sort of evidence threshold for a fine is the Christmas, is the birthday cake, um, which he and Rishi and Carrie all got fined for, then the parties where, you know, there were trestle tables full of booze and food and, you know, number 10 staff were sort of unconscious in the flower beds, <laughs> Um, that sounds to me like it probably also meets the threshold. And I, you know, and Boris is sort of, I had no idea it was a party. You know, I mean, he's not just half-witted, he's quarter-witted, you know. Yeah, how was that when you saw Partygate unfolding? Have you been surprised at the rate that it has gone? Because it seemed to accelerate, then decelerate, then accelerate, decelerate. Obviously, Ukraine was a convenient break uh, for Partygate uh, investigations. But what has it been like watching that close up? Because that seems to have been one of the most barefaced expressions of lying. Yeah. I mean, it was... It was sort of like watching a soap opera unfold. Um, you know, and there were sort of twists. And as you said, it sometimes it seemed like 
it just didn't feel possible for Boris to wriggle out of this one. And yet, every time he seemed to. And then, as you said, the uh, Ukraine war started and that did seem to save him. And then it, everybody thought, oh, the Sue Gray report is going to be a whitewash. She's not going to go for him. And then she wrote this two-page... Um, you know, summary documents saying basically that things were really bad and that the police need to go. And so that was another surprise. I think a lot of people were surprised when he got fined for um, the birthday cake. Um, it's slightly bewildering that he hasn't, or he hasn't admitted that he's been fined for the party in the number 10 garden. Um, can't can't work that out. I mean, it is it is just sort of you. You kind of think that the the Met Police are working at a kind of glacial pace, really. Um, and I don't know what they're waiting for. I don't know what evidence they've got. No one seems to know. We're, we're, it's amazing that in a kind of fully functioning doc democracy, so many people can be in the dark. Um, you know, I mean, Boris sort of, you know, always says, I love the free press, you know, I love, I love democracy. But he has spent the best part of the last three months running scared of the press and indeed of, of Parliament. He, he only goes in, you know, for pri Prime Minister's questions. This week... It's customary after a big trip abroad. I mean, the Prime Minister went to India last, uh, last week. It's normal for him to come back and make a statement to the House where he can be interrogated on what he did, why he went, what he said. And he just didn't turn up. And eventually there was an urgent question. And th this was extraordinary because the person he sent along to answer the question was a foreign office minister with responsibility for Africa. You kind of think, you know, is he actively taking the piss? You know, is this all a real game to him or is it just chaos? And I think that's another thing we can't work out. You know, whether the number 10 is just falling apart and, it's basically running on a sort of minute-by-minute minute basis with decisions being farmed out randomly, or is it much more organised and they are taking the country for a ride? Um, I mean, I'm sorry to get serious, but I mean, it, it does feel like that. Um, Do you think that that stems from the character of Boris Johnson personally. I mean, all of these traits that you're describing, the electorate are familiar with them going way back from when he was a journalist. You know, his appearances on Have I Got News For You, all of his scrapes that he's got... You know, I mean, I, I don't hate to use that word because it's a Boris kind of word, but all of the moments of obfuscation and deceit that were characteristic since long before. Do you think it stems from him and his leadership? Or do you think that it's something inside the Conservative Party that has facilitated this? Um, no, I think it was always like that. I mean, you know, Boris has been hiding in plain sight, really. I mean, there is nothing, you know, about his behaviour. I mean, you know, he spent a lifetime lying to employers. He got sacked at the Times for inventing quotes. He, when he was shadow culture secretary um, under Michael Howard, he was sacked for lying to him about his affair with Petronella Wyatt. Um, you know, deceit has been long past. And, you know, I think it has all just been a game. I mean, Boris just sort of adopts whatever persona is required. 
you know, um, when he wanted to become mayor of London, suddenly we got the socially liberal Boris. I mean, it wasn't that, you know, the Brexiteer Boris that later emerged, if that, if that Boris had uh, appeared in 2008 or whenever it was and said, you know, elect me, he would never have got in. Um, you know, but instead we got the sort of openly engaged, you know, by then he was committed to the European Union, committed to the single market, customs union, all that. Um, and I think for Boris, Brexit was just a vehicle for him to get back into government and to end up where he is now. Mm. And it's all come back to bite him, because I thought, think he thought it was going to be a lot easier. I mean, not least when he became prime minister. You know, he won the election, you know, January the 31st, 2020, uh, we leave the EU. We, I remember, so endless, you know, big bong, big Ben bongs for Brexit or God mm. knows what else. Bunga Bob, bum, bunga Bob for the big bong Brexit. Hey! Yes. <laughs> That catchphrase. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think he was there, you know, he thought it was going to be all good times. And then, you know, he finds himself straight in COVID land. Um, yes, let's talk a little bit about that time because you write so brilliantly about that strange period um, in Farewell to Calm. And I was just remembering myself that there was a lot of commentary um, once we'd got over the fact that he missed five Cobra meetings <laughs> and basically was too busy getting married and signing his contract on his new book on Shakespeare to really have any connection with COVID whatsoever. But then he got COVID and for a time people were saying that he was a changed man. Do you remember that? Yeah, no, I think they just, people just felt sorry for him. Mm. Oh, oh, he said COVID. Um, you know, he's been in intensive care. You know, there was a kind of... I can remember... I can actually remember, uh, you know, the, the, the feeling that, God, this is quite serious. You know, I know, you know, kind of what happens if the prime minister of the country sort of dies in the beginning of a pandemic? And I know, it'd be such a shame, wouldn't it? <laughs> Um, but no, it, it was a big deal. And I mean, again, I think we need to feel sorry for Matt Hancock here um, <laughs> because he got COVID at the same time and nobody gave a toss. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was, oh, yeah, well, Matt Hancock. I mean, who cares? You know, <laughs> you win some, you lose some. You know, but with Boris, oh, it was Boris, you know. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, but and I also think that sort of after they both recovered, it was initially, I mean, to give credit where credit is due, it was Matt Hancock who was the more engaged about trying to get the country on a kind of pandemic footing. He was the one who was really pushing for, it was a million tests a day or whatever it was. He was the one who had all the friends down the pub. Yeah. <laughs> get a deal on yeah. some PPE. Um, but, I mean, at, at the time, we didn't realise sort of quite what the, how much chaos there was and that they were literally just throwing money, you know, at anybody who would said, We've got, we, we can make you some PPE. They'll say, OK, well, you know, here's 50 million quid. Mm. And... There is, a, there is a great, the great stories um, this week that people were li literally crossing the channel with suitcases full of COVID cash. Yeah. Um, and it's only just recently that Rishi Sunak has gone, oh, maybe we should try and get some of it back. Well, it's an idea. I mean, the country has got less money and everyone's really hard up. You would think that trying to recover some of the sort of five or ten billion quid that's been fraudulently extracted we would be a priority long before party gate it was of course the barnard castle 
eye, eyesight testing incident uh, <laughs> that looked as if there were a lot of moments as that unfolded, uh, not least when Dominic Cummings ended up having to sit at that really strange makeshift table in the, oh, garden. Yeah, the rose garden. <laughs> in the wow. rose garden. There are many moments during that when it seemed as if there's no way that Boris can survive this. Um, how was that, watching that up close? I mean, that was extraordinary. Um, I mean, it was... I wasn't as close as... I mean, because we were in lockdown, um, and only a handful of journalists, certainly not sketch writers, were invited in to the Rose Garden, number 10 Rose Garden for that. Mm -hmm. So I had to sketch it off the TV. Um, I think, I mean... You know, now we have hindsight, um, it becomes clearer. You know, because at the time there was this thing, why is Boris really putting his whole administration in jeopardy? Why is he um, undermining his own government's health messaging? So, obviously, by supporting Dominic Cummings. It didn't make sense, except it does now, because we know that Boris himself was breaking his own lockdown rules, you know, on a weekly basis almost. So there was this sort of complicity inside number 10. Yeah, it is interesting that, because I don't feel as if that is really being counted in the Partygate storyline. And that was so offensive. The Barnard Castle incident was offensive, really offensive to people at the time. And people were horrified that the government wasn't speaking out against it. I know. I mean, it was, ex I mean, it was extraordinary. First of all, there was the fact that he... I mean, I mean just the whole, me whole mechanics of it. I mean, it seemed to me that Dominic Cummings discovered or thinks that he's got COVID, goes home where his wife has COVID and his son has COVID and thinks, I know what the best thing to do is. <laughs> I'm going to get in the car and drive 240 miles up to Durham to my dad's house. Um, you know, and I'm going to trust that my son, you know, my seven-year-old son, is so iron-bladdered that he, we won't need to stop anywhere on the way. And of course, we've got a full tank of petrol. I mean, I, I personally doubt either of these things were true. You know, I'm sure he stopped at motorway services, all sorts of stuff as well. Um, so that, none of that made sense. Uh, and then the eyesight test was... <laughs> I mean, it was pitiful, wasn't it? I'm worried that I'm losing my sight, so I'm going to drive my entire family into a wall. <laughs> oh, dear. Halcyon memories. Yeah, of happy those days. Early COVID times. The question that just comes up all of the time as you're talking about all of these extraordinary incidents, and there are so many of them that we just forget. You know, this is maybe part of the genius of Boris Johnson that these things accumulate. And he, you know, he's got. Do you remember he's got that um, TV clip of him saying, "You know, just cre keep creating distractions, yeah. and they'll never come for you." Uh, and it seems seems to have worked. But the question that always comes to mind is, you know, why? Why does he continue to be supported? within his own party. You know, why did that number of letters never seem to creep beyond 14 or 15, and they need, what, they need 55, right? Yeah. It never seemed to go up, even as there was almost a fever pitch. Why is he so supported, and I think it's fair to say, in some quarters of the electorate, we can't know for sure, but I don't feel as if there's a huge groundswell against him in some quarters. Why is that? Well, within the Tory party, um, I think 
partly uh, there's a sense of loyalty to Boris. There are a lot of MPs who kind of think, I would never be an MP if without Boris Johnson. You know, the, re mm. the, you know, the Red Wall Tories who, who sort of won in areas where the Tories had never won in before back in 2019. And I think there, is a, there was a sense that they owed him and they, they, they were worried that another Tory, under another Tory leader, um, you know, they would cease to be an MP at the next general election, um, which may indeed be the case anyway. Um, and I think also you should never underestimate the Tory party's sort of self-interest. Um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of talk about governing in the national interest, but really it's about, a lot of it is petty power games of, you know, keeping in government at the moment for the kind of Tory party. And they do see Boris as their best asset, I think. Um, and until that changes, um, you know, he'll probably stay there. I mean, I think it is changing a bit. And as I've said, you know, if, if other factors fall into place, I think, I think they'll be quite ruthless. But the fact remains that we, you know, in a sort of democratic country of sort of 66 million people, 350 Tory MPs uh, hold the key to who is our Prime Minister. There is absolutely nothing, you know, we can do about it. He can lie through his teeth, he can prorogue Parliament, he can do all things that you would imagine any other Prime Minister would have had to resign for. And unless the Tory, the Tory MPs put their letters into the 1922 committee, he can stay there. Um, you know, there is nothing the Labour Party can do or say to remove him. I'd forgotten about the proroguing of Parliament. There's so many things that... Oh, it's just unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah. Right, we're going to open up to questions in a moment, so please do raise your hand if you have a question. We've got some roving microphones that will come around to you. While you're thinking about that, um, let me ask you to... I don't... This, this, this is a support group that we have formed <laughs> this evening, and I don't want uh, us to leave uh, on an entirely negative note, although I think it's also important to be honest and realistic. <laughs> um, but tell us, is there a person who you see day in, day out, and you think, now that's a good MP, that's a good politician, that's a good speaker? Um, well, I mean, I... I kind of look at most of the Labour front bench and kind of think they are reasonable human beings and can I imagine Keir Starmer as, as a Prime Minister doing Prime Ministerial things? Yeah. And Rachel Reeves, she's really bright. She'd probably make a very good Chancellor. So, yeah, I mean, on the Tory side, um, you know, it's kind of harder to see whether... Um, you know, sort of one nation group, you know, the, the kind of sensible wing is. I mean, there's Tom Tugendhat and Tobias Elwood. Um, I just don't know if there is, they have the support of enough Tory MPs to uh, make them sensible candidates, really. Um, which is why I think, you know, Jeremy Hunt might ghost in again as the, as the compromise mm -hmm. person. Um, well, that's, that's good. That's relatively cheering. Yeah, that's about as good as I can get, really. Okay, okay that'll do. <laughs> yes, let's come over here. Hi. Hello. Um, first of all, thank you for your writing, especially during the lockdown. Oh. It really raised our spirits. It, even though at the same time it made me really angry. <laughs> it's funny because it's funny, but it's the sum of the behaviour that you write about is so awful. Um, you were talking a little bit about the distraction and the, I think they call it in politics, the dead cat. 
Mm. Throw the dead cat on the table. And I wonder how you work with that, because obviously you're writing, you're a sketch writer, but how do you avoid being manipulated by the latest shiny thing or the latest scandal that they're dropping when you're actually following up on something quite significant? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think... I mean... My job is to, you know, kind of reflect the mood and, you know, I, it's... So I've got a certain amount of leeway. I mean, I, I'm, I can't just ignore something if it happens, but I kind of feel that the job is to call it out. And, you know, if it is... If you do think it is kind of a dead cat, then, you know, go meow at it, really, and have fun with it, and kind of expose the... Um, mendacity, uh, you know, attached to it, um, and hope, for, you know, and then just sort of move on. I mean, my, I never know quite what, I mean, you know, is going to happen in any day. Um, you just have, you know, you can't choose your material, really. You have to work with what's there. Thank you. Lovely question. Yes, Rosie. Um, I'm very intrigued um, by the whole timing and the potential leaking from number 10 about Rishi Sunak. I mean, A, do you believe that they leaked it? And B, why did they choose to do it right then? And were you, as someone who watches MPs all the time, do you actually know all that stuff about Rishi? Or was it, did it blindside you as it clearly did loads of other people? Um, I think it blindsided everyone, actually, because... I mean, I don't know what the Tory papers knew, but I mean, if, you know, if I'm, I can assure you that, um, you know, if our Guardian political team had known that sort of Rishi's, you know, non-dom status and green card and that he was, you know, uh, he was effectively, um, you know, resident in the US as far as tax was concerned, um, we would have, you know, we would have reported it. Um, but I'm almost, I, I think you're probably right that it was number 10 who was doing most of the leaking. I mean, it's terrible, really, isn't it? You've got a chancellor and a prime minister who can't stand one another. I mean, we had that with sort of Gordon Brown and with uh, Tony Blair. And sort of history has sort of come back. Um, you know, it's, it's desperate stuff, really, isn't it? Um, but, I mean, the thing is, it's worked as far as Boris is concerned. I mean, it's finished Rishi off, really. Um, you know, uh, I, I, it was sort of even leaked... Uh, they even leaked his... Uh, uh, 300 pound trainers, I think, didn't they? You know, you're not a man of the people because you've got three. Well, I, I, I think the sort of 200 million quid is probably more of a, more of a uh, hindrance than the trainers. But, you know, they knew where to go and they did it very well. Great, let's go over here. Hello. Oh, sorry. <laughs> You have the spirit of Liz Truss within you. <laughs> God forgive me. Um, right, I'll try a bit, I'll try again. Um, someone once said that um, all political careers end in ignominy, and I have no idea who it was, but it's somewhere in my head. I wonder whether um, you think that, that decent politicians might be deterred from going into politics or, or going into further into politics than they might think, because people like you are doing such a good job of holding their feet to the fire, or are they all just so thick-skinned that it just bounces off them? You, I do sometimes wonder why they even go into it when they know that, that, that so much of their efforts are not trashed, but even the ones who want to do good end up being turned, I suppose, the, the, the corruption of being in power. Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's another really good question. Um, I mean, I certainly wouldn't want to go into politics 
as, you know, I wouldn't want someone like me writing this stuff <laughs> about me. Um, uh, I can't, I mean, I think there are some MPs who go into Parliament for absolutely the right reasons. You know, they want to make a difference. Um, you know, public service and all that. And I think, you know, it's sort of unhelpful and counterproductive to reduce everyone to a kind of Boris Johnson own level of sort of narcissistic gratification. Um, but, you know, there are those, you know, like Boris, you know, who are clearly you know, it was only about power for him. You know, if, if Boris had been left as a backbencher for uh, five or six years, he would have got bored and left Parliament. He wouldn't have been that interested in serving on a select committee or something like that, you know. He wants, you know, he wants the full fun of the power. And there's, you know, probably a lot of them like that as well. I mean, you know, to a lesser extent, Matt Hancock, but, but all of them. Um, you know, in the cabinet, you kind of... It is dispiriting to look around the cabinet and see such mediocrity. Um, it's... You kind of think... I mean, most of them were, I mean, unfortunately picked back in 2019. Um, for their Brexit credentials. Um, and there was never going to be a, you know, Boris had no idea that, you know, they were going to need to sort of come good through, a, you know, a pandemic. And by and large, they didn't. They were kind of hopeless. Um, and, you know, then there's sort of some like Pretty Patel, who you know wouldn't get a job under any other prime minister. Um, I mean, she is sort of frighteningly stupid, <laughs> as well as being quite vicious with it. I mean, it's a, not, it's a fairly lethal combination. Well, there is a theory of, uh, that Boris Johnson intentionally surrounds himself with mediocrity in order to appear perhaps more competent himself. What a genius strategy this has proved. <laughs> um, yeah, what could possibly that, go but wrong? do you think there's some truth in that? Because yeah. it's the opposite of perhaps someone like David Cameron, who clearly had long-term allies who he wanted to keep near him to make... You know, usually if you're in a leadership position, you choose people who make up for your own deficiencies. Um, well, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, the first thing that Boris did when he became Prime when Theresa May resigned was to make enemies of everyone sensible in the Tory party. You know, the Anna Soubrys, the Dominic Greaves, um, you know, the Ken Clarks, anyone with any kind of, um, kind of moderation. I mean, you know, he just sort of branded, oh, you're just trying to stop Brexit. They, you know, they were, and they weren't. They were trying to get the best out, you know, to say, you know, to get the best out of a bad situation. But Boris wouldn't handle, you know, so we're kind of left with the dregs, really. Um, you've, you've got Dominic Raab. I mean, there is a man, I mean, you can see him at the dispatch box and he's got his anger vein. I don't know, he must live in a permanent state of rage, as far as I can see. You sort of, you just suspect there are sort of various dead bodies sort of lying around in the Thames somewhere <laughs> when he's been off on a sort of psychotic, uh, you know, bender. Um, I've often sketched him like that and he's never sued. I was just going to say, I hope you don't put this in print. Oh, I do regularly, <laughs> yeah. I sometimes see how many dead bodies I can sort of tot up. <laughs> and perhaps he's sort of, you know, perhaps it's sort of, you know, how have you seen the Jimmy Savile um, documentary where basically he's confessing to his crimes in broad daylight and nobody is seeing it? And you kind of wonder if Dominic Raab is doing the same. Except he's just, you know, he just kills people for pleasure. 
In case there are any lawyers in the audience, <laughs> I'd just like to say that uh, John is a satirist. Uh, yes, let's go over here. Well, good evening, Mr. Kreis. Hello. Um, I just wanted to ask you about how you view the fact that Boris Johnson is our emblem, our symbol, our representative, specifically, not just specifically, Europe. But how do you think he is really seen by other so-called European leaders, in that we're not in the European Union any longer, sadly. And there is this, also this Australasian Antipodean connection, and that's another subject perhaps. But I wonder, when he's sort of roundly sort of ignored and shunned, and people almost turn their back on him when he attends a G7 or a G8, I'm not sure which it is, but when he attends one of these grand meetings, he's not invited to the after party or whatever it is. Um, could you say how you feel he is genuinely seen by his peers in Europe? Is he a laughing stock, or is he regarded with some respect as the rebellious upper-class twit? Um, well, I mean, I think it's t telling that um, President Macron was sort of re-elected on Sunday, and he's rung most uh, world leaders, and he hasn't rung Boris yet. Um, so that sort of tells us, you know, as the state of, you know, Anglo-French relations and sort of Anglo-EU relations, I think. Um, it's, you know, it's not good. Um, you know, I think, I mean, Boris has won brownie points for his handling of the Ukraine crisis. Um, but, I mean, I kind of think that, you know, Keir Starmer would have done exactly the same. So this idea that there is some kind of Boris Johnson magic that has been applied to uh, to Ukraine is is kind of nonsense, really. Well, it's completely disingenuous because we haven't actually taken hardly any refugees. I know we are the we are the only country to insist on visas for Ukrainian refugees, um, and by all accounts, I think we've only um, rehoused seventeen thousand at the moment, something like that, which is you know Poland's on two million. Um. Yes. Is there another question? Go ahead. Um, hi. It, it's a shit question, not another good question. I was just wondering, in the abstract, if we didn't have Johnson as a PM, who we all agree, or mostly agree, is probably quite a immoral individual, without any adjectives, you supply the anecdotes, and if Keir Starmer wasn't, as we mostly think, probably a decent person with morals, he was DDP and no one's ever uncovered shit about him, in an abstract world, would you, would you vote Labour or Conservative if we took out all the personalities? Um, uh, well, I mean... I, th I assume that I would vote Labour. I mean, I'm 65, and I've voted Labour all my life, really. Um, you know, sometimes... One person, that says it all. <laughs> yeah. I mean, sometimes more reluctantly than others. Um, you know, I, I, I wasn't that happy voting for Jeremy Corbyn, I have to say. Um, but... Uh, I kind of live in a, a tooting constituency where, you know, the Lib Dems are nowhere, the Green, you know, so, you know, and we had a very good Labour MP there, so I voted for her, really. Um, you know, so we've had all sorts, you know, over the years, and, yeah, I've stuck with Labour, um, and I suspect I will. Well, I suppose most, most political journalists are supposed to say that they, it's a big secret and they don't, and that they are completely impartial. Uh, um, well, you do work for the Guardian, <laughs> so it's a bit of a giveaway. Yeah, let's take this as a last question because we should probably finish soon. Um, 
Yes, I, I, I don't know if this is a, a good last question or not, but I just would, I'd be, I'm, I'm very intrigued as to why Rishi Sunak hasn't resigned. Um, why on earth does Boris Johnson hold people in such thrall that they don't have the self-worth to do the thing that they should do? Because clearly he doesn't need to be an MP. His, his, his political career has been trashed by by Boris Johnson, in effect, and circumstances. Why on earth are people willing to be thrown under the bus by him, apparently uh, uh, without, without complaint? That is a really spot-on question. And I can't really answer because, you know, in a sense, you've answered. I mean, it is sort of unknowable. Um, you know, is Rishi Sunak a man of so little self-worth that he is incapable of sort of making a stand and saying, actually, I believe something to be wrong? Or is it, I don't know whether there is something in the DNA of Tory MPs or indeed of Labour MPs that where the party comes first. I'm always amazed because um, I've, I've thought of William Hague as one of the more sensible Tories. And yet he frequently, whenever he's asked, he says, I trust Boris Johnson, which is something no, not even his friends have said. <laughs> And it's, you know, it's complete nonsense. You know that he doesn't. But he has this ludicrous sense of loyalty where the party comes first, as if the sky would fall in if he was to, to criticise a, a sitting prime minister. Um, I don't know. I mean, that is, in a way, part of the fun of sketching, is trying to create a psychological narrative for the characters and to try and make to try and understand them um, and in as much as i've got there uh, so far i mean I'm, I'm with you on the fact that actually rishi sunak has far less self-worth than and i and i think the same with boris johnson i think he has no self-worth either he's got a kind of massive ego but deep inside I think, or I like to believe, is that there is a man who really hates himself, um, who kind of looks, you know, is really pained by what he sees in the mirror. Um, I kind of need to believe that, really. <laughs> I need to believe that he is suffering at some level. <laughs> the idea that he's getting away with it is just too disturbing. Well, on that note, we're going to draw this to a close. I, I do think that's a positive note to end on, that the depth of his suffering yeah. <laughs> is truly inspiring. It's, it is profound. Uh, in a world where we can't really trust anyone, uh, the one person you can trust is John Crace to make light of all of this uh, and to make it brilliant reading always. Thank you for that, John. So please come and see both of us downstairs. Support your local bookseller. Come and pick up a copy of John Crace's brilliant A Farewell to Calm. Thank you to all of you for your brilliant questions. Thank, Thank you, you for coming. I'll hand over to Dr. Rosie. Thank you, Viv. Thank you all. And Viv's book is also available downstairs. Viv's wonderful books. Thank you both very, very much. It was great, funny, incisive, and really informative. Thank you. And thank you all very much for coming. Come back soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.